Thank you, Dr. Moeller, for the invitation. Thank you all for coming. It's an honor to be with you. Uh, I can't think of any other audience I'd rather speak to than people on their way to ministry like you are. Let's pray. Lord, we continue now to worship over your word. I pray that as we hear and as I speak, you would be treasured, you would be loved, you would be honored, and to that end, you would more clearly be seen and understood. So, anoint me for this work, I pray. May I be faithful to your word, and may there be the enlightenment of the heart to see your greatness, your glory, your purposes for these students and faculty and guests. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to John chapter 8. The Gospel of John chapter 8. We're going to read verses 28 through 34. My topic title is Don't Waste Your Seminary. Don't Waste Your Seminary Life. Don't Waste Your Seminary Years. Verse 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So this message is an extended meditation upon verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The reason I I read those previous verses and those subsequent verses is because the meaning of the word truth is made clear in the previous verses, and the meaning of the word free is made clear in the subsequent verses, and I don't want to read in any other meaning to those two words than are here, so let me just show you what I see. You will know the truth. What truth? Well, previous verse, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you'll know the truth. So the first inference I'm drawing out is that this is the truth of what he says. It's the truth of his Word, And then if you ask, 
more specifically, any focus to this word, any particular content to this word. I back up further, and I see him saying, verse 28, so Jesus said, this is his word, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. So this is a word focused on Jesus, Son of Man, sent into the world from the Father to be obedient to the Father, doing whatever the Father says. So this is a pretty expansive and yet focused word. So that's my understanding of you will know the truth. You'll know the truth of the word of Jesus concerning Himself as the Son of Man, being lifted up on a cross in obedience to the Father, doing everything the Father says. That's, you'll know that. And that will set you free. From what? They, they said, we, we're not enslaved. And Jesus clarified what He meant in verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. I will set you free, knowing this truth will set you free from the slavery of sin, bondage to sin. So now we have a a fairly clear sense of what you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free from slavery to sin. You'll know the truth about my word. You'll know my word. You'll know the content of my word about me, my father, my act in coming and being lifted up. You'll know these things. And this knowing, this known truth will free you from the power of sin in your life. Now, What is sin? John uses the term sin or sinned 21 times and he never defines it. He must assume that it is a fairly clear idea to his readers and it should be. But let me work on it for a minute with you. How would you define sin? What what bondage are you freed from by this known truth? Sin is not the movement of your muscles on the way to commit fornication. Sin is not the movement of the muscle of the tongue in the act of lying. Sin is not the the movement of your hand, the muscles in your hand, the chemical, electrical aspects of your hand stealing something. Sin is not physical. The essence of sin is in the heart. And I would say sin is, at its essence, the preferring of anything over God. And I draw that largely from Romans 3.23, all have sinned, comma, and shedding a lot of light on what he just said, 
fall short or lack, hystereo, the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that sin is an internal displacement of the glory of God in our affections, in our valuing, in our treasuring, with anything above God. Sin is a, a movement not of the body, but of the heart toward preferring anything to God. All sin outwardly is an expression of the inward preference of anything above God. That's what sin is. So the essence of sin is the displacement of the glory of God in your heart with any other preference. Now, let me replace the word preference with some other words. And you see if this is accurate. I could say, I prefer this over that. Or I could say, I want this over that. Or I desire this over that. Or I value this over that. Or I delight in this over that, or I treasure this over that. And I would say sin is therefore a displacement, or to use the words of Romans 1.23, an exchange, exchange the glory of God, a displacement, an exchange of the treasure of the glory of God for anything that you want more, or desire more, or value more, or delight in more, or treasure more. That's what sin is. Now, back to John 8.32. You will, you will know the truth of my word. You'll know me and my Father and my work through my word. You'll know this, and this known truth will set you free from the bondage to preferring anything above me. It will set you free from the slavery of wanting anything more than you want me. It will set you free from the bondage of treasuring anything more than you treasure me. That's what this knowing will do for you. This is a profound, really profound work of the Word in the heart. You will know the truth, the Word, the Son of Man, the cross, the Father. And this known truth will bring about in your heart a preference for God over everything. It will bring about a desire for God over everything. It will bring about a delight or a joy in God over everything. It will bring about a treasuring of God over everything. And thus, you will be free to do whatever you want and not regret it in a thousand years. Because you will want Him. And that's the power of this known truth. You will know this And you will become the freest of all people 
because you will be set free from the bondage of loving anything more than you love God, wanting anything more than you want God, treasuring anything more than you treasure God, and you will be the freest of all people to do what you love, want, desire, treasure, and never regret it in a thousand years. That's freedom. That's freedom. Or, to draw out the implications a little further, knowing the truth of God, therefore, stands in the service of preferring the God of truth. Knowing stands in the service of preferring. Knowing is a servant of treasuring. Desiring, enjoying, being satisfied, you will know and be freed from all those enslaving satisfactions for a superior satisfaction in God. You will be set free from your preferring of other things to God. So, knowing, thinking, reasoning, about God is the servant of your hearts, loves, your hearts, passions, your hearts, desires, your hearts, treasurings. To draw it out a little further, the organ of knowing is given by God to serve the organ of preferring or desiring or enjoying or treasuring. Thinking exists to serve feeling. Reflection about God exists to awaken affection for God. Constructing doctrines about God, and I hope that's what you're doing in these years. Taking all the magnificent pieces of divine revelation in the Bible and weaving them together in biblical proportion into doctrinal portraits of God and Christ and sin and man and salvation and the future, weaving them all together in glorious panoramas of God for the sake of delighting in the God of those doctrines. That's why you do it. God gave you doctrine for delight. God gave you a mind to be a faithful servant of your heart. So, another way to say it, thinking about God, reasoning about God, knowing God, these are the staples of seminary life, I hope. You're not playing games here. Thinking about God, reasoning about God, knowing God is the necessary means and delighting in God and enjoying God and treasuring God, preferring God, is the ultimate end. Of the human soul. That is a careful statement, not a rhetorical flourish. Reasoning Thinking, knowing, 
God is the necessary means and delighting in, being satisfied with, enjoying and treasuring God is the ultimate end of the human soul. No exaggeration. So this brings me now to my answer to Al Mohler's question. Would you tell them how not to waste their seminary? And here is my main point. You will not waste your seminary, your years here, your efforts here, your experience. You will not waste your seminary years if you solidify the lifelong habit of thinking about the truth of God as a means of enjoying the God of truth. I'll say it again. You will not waste this experience if you solidify. I'm using the word solidify because I'm assuming most of you have started this before you came at the moment of your conversion. You will not waste these years if it becomes more solid and more deep. This habit of mind, habit of heart, habit of soul, habit of life. The habit. Form the lifelong habit. Solidify the lifelong habit of thinking about the truth of God as a means of enjoying the God of truth. You won't waste your seminary if you form a lifelong habit of doing that. Or to say it another way, you won't waste your seminary if you solidify the lifelong habit of reasoning well about God as a means of rejoicing in God. Or you will not waste your seminary if you solidify the lifelong habit of knowing God better than you know anything as a means of preferring God more than you prefer anything. Now that's the end of my message if you just want the main point. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free from preferring anything to God. And I'm saying that these years are given to you for the purpose of forming the habit of thinking about the truth of God as a means of enjoying the God of truth. A lifelong habit is something you do intuitively for the rest of your life. And habits are formed by practice and repetition and sometimes by, at the beginning, very concerted and painful effort. If you don't have this habit, it may take some focused effort and then repetition to form it. That's what seminary is. 
It's a season of forming habits of the soul. You're not just getting skills here. You're not just getting awareness here. You are, I hope, I pray, that's why I'm here, is to help you form habits of the soul. The aim of this message is to strengthen your resolve to pursue that practice, that repetition, and solidify that habit. Always to make reflection the servant of affection. In every class, every conversation, every book you read, every paper you write, I will not be content until this serves my joy in God. Now, how can I stir you up to form that habit? How can I strengthen your resolve to practice this and thus form the lifelong habit so that when you're 68 instead of 28, you'll still consider it the greatest challenge and privilege of your life. I will do it by answering four questions, Lord willing, and concluding with five applications. Question number one. Piper, what do you mean by the affections? You've used a lot of words. You, you, you seem to just kind of sling them all out there as though they mean the same thing joy in God, wanting God, desiring God, being satisfied in God, treasuring God, valuing God, storing up affections for God. What, what do you mean by affections for God? And I, I ask myself that question in front of you so that I can make a denial and an affirmation about this. The denial is I do not mean anything physical like trembling hands, wobbly knees, fluttering eyelashes, sweaty palms, butterflies, all of which are accompaniments in this life of genuine spiritual affections sometimes. I just don't mean any of that. That has no moral standing. (laughs) Unbelievers have all of that. I mean spiritual affection, spiritual emotions. And by spiritual, you know this, I mean wrought by the Holy Spirit, sustained by the Holy Spirit, shaped by the Holy Spirit, and therefore they are supernatural. I mean things unbelievers don't experience. So, the language I'm using, be satisfied with, delight in, value, treasure, enjoy, they sound like familiar language. But as soon as you realize, in God, above all, nobody experiences that except those who are born of God. This is supernatural. So, my answer to my first question is, 
I'm talking about something huge when I use those words. And what bumps them up out of the natural into the supernatural is where they repose in God. Everybody wants to be happy. Only Christians are happy in God. Only Christians prefer God above everything. Only Christians treasure God above everything. Only Christians prefer God over all other pleasures. That's supernatural. So, question number one, what do you mean by these words, these affections? And I mean spiritual affections. Holy Spirit wrought affections that are not physical. And now you may very have, have a hard time conceiving of such a thing because in this body, the experience of spiritual affections are always hooked up with physical realities. They're never separate while you're alive here. So you might ask, well, how do you even know their the existence? Since I always have bodily dimensions and brain dimensions to this. Yes, you do. But you won't when you're dead. And the Bible says you'll keep having these emotions when you're dead. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. What does that mean? Depart. Leave my body. Leave this world. Now, he wants the resurrection more than he wants that state. I'm with you. God, I want to be raised from the dead with a new body. But in the meantime, he's got this second experience, and it's better. Even though he doesn't like being without a body, it's better. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. So while his body is decaying in the tomb, he has better emotions, better affections. His enjoyment of God is better. His treasuring God is better. And his delight in the glories of the truth of the word are better. And therefore, I affirm without any suspicion of contradiction, these affections are not physical in their essence. Here's the second reason I know they're not. God has them. Hosea 11.8, my compassion grows warm and tender. He doesn't have a body. Warm, warm, warm. What? What? Warm. My compassion grows warm and tender. God has these affections, and he has no body. Jeremiah 4.8, fierce anger of the Lord. I never experience anger without feeling it in my body. I mainly feel anger in my body. Feel it. God has anger, feels it in nobody. And I will have anger in, in heaven. I will hate sin more purely than I do now and be angry at the perpetrators of it with a holy and pure anger with nobody. Feel it. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord rejoices over us, sings over us. He has no vocal cords and no body to tingle. 
So my answer to my first question, what do you mean by the affections, is I mean spiritual affections that are essentially non-physical and capable of being felt by souls in heaven before the resurrection body and felt by God. Number two, question number two. Why do you say, asking myself questions, this is how I think. I'm, I'm modeling for you right now, by the way, my point. Thinking about the truth of God in order to enjoy the God of truth. That's what I'm doing for these next 20 minutes or so. This is the way I work. This is what I'm doing with you right now is what I do pretty much every day. All sermon preparation is asking myself questions about text. That's just all it is. And then trying to answer them. Couldn't preach if you had no answers. But that's the dialogue in my head that I call thinking. So, Piper, what, um, why do you say that the lifelong habit of pursuing affections for God by means of thinking about God is the way not to waste your seminary. Why did you hit upon that? I mean, there's just so many ways you could talk about not wasting your seminary. What, why did you go here? Why, what even causes this constellation of thoughts and that choice of that text to happen? Now, the answer to that question comes in three steps. Uh, this gets complicated. You say, oh, no, he's already in question number two, and now he's got three steps to answer question number two, and I'm going to lose this. Well, <laughs> I'm pleading with you to form the lifelong habit of thinking in the service of affection. So I'm going to take five minutes on this one, and it's complicated. Um, actually, it's simple, but if you have a brain that doesn't like to put premises in place and draw conclusions from them, then, then you're going to have a hard time with this. But just three simple steps. Number one, I believe a life is wasted that does not achieve the ultimate reason for its existence. Okay, you good? I believe a life or a seminary experience is wasted that doesn't arrive at the ultimate reason for its existence. That's pretty, pretty plain, I think. So I happen to know why you exist. All of you, without any doubt. I know why you're male or female. I know why you're tall or short. I know why you're smart or average. I, I, I know the reason for all of that because Colossians 1.16b tells me all things were made through him and for him, period. You were made, you exist for Christ. Now, what does that mean? He doesn't need you. He's not improved by you. He has no defects or deficiencies that you contribute to. So what does for him mean? It means 
for his display, for his glory, for his being magnified as what he is in your telescopic life. That's what telescopes are for. You little dot out there, that's a supernova. It looks like a dot. The way God is to most people, he's a supernova and he looks like a dot. And you exist to put the telescope to people's eyes, your life, your mind, everything you do is to put the telescope to a congregation's eyes, week in, week out. People put the telescope on a person's eyes in the counseling room, on the street, in an act of witnessing. You put the telescope of your life, your words, on their eye and make it go pow! Whoa! That's not a dot! That's why you exist. All things were made through him and for his display. Paul said in Philippians 1.19, my eager expectation and hope now as always is that I might not at all be ashamed, but that Christ might be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I exist to make much of Christ, and so do you, I pray. That's why you are here on the planet in the seminary. Forming habits of soul that magnify the worth of Christ in the world. That's why you're here. It's your life mission. It'll be different in its outworking for every one of you. But that's it. Okay, that's step one in my answer. Three steps. Step one, I chose to say what I have said in the last minutes about wasting your seminary because, number one, I assume, based on Colossians 1.16, that a seminary or a life is wasted if it doesn't form habits of achieving our ultimate reason for being. Step two in my answer. Enjoying Christ above all things is essential to magnifying Christ above all things. I have given my whole life to defend that and to understand that and to try to apply it in my life and in my ministry. That's just about all I think about. Say it again. Step two. So step one, we exist to magnify him. Step two, Essential, essential to magnifying him most is enjoying him most. Now, I've written books about it. I could preach a whole sermon on it, and I'm just going to give you an illustration to show you believe this and that you're warranted in believing it. I'm going to get home, Lord willing, at about 4.30 this afternoon, home meaning Knoxville, Tennessee for right now, have been away from Noel for about a week. If I get off the plane, she's there to get me the baggage, and I say to her, Noel, got some ideas. 
let's, let's spend the evening together, just you and me, because nothing would make me happier than to spend the night with you. Now, she will not say, she never has said, and none of you women would say, you are so selfish. I just can't believe you get off the plane and look in my face and tell me what will make you happy. That's all you ever think about. Make you happy. Nothing will make you happier. You are just so selfish. I just can't tell you how profound this is. I mean, I, this will change your life if you get what I'm telling you right now. Absolutely change everything in your life. Why doesn't she accuse me of selfishness? I just said, nothing would make me happier than to be with you. It's very simple. When you delight in someone, you honor them. You get the joy, they get the honor. It's that simple. You know this. You feel this in your bones. You're made this way because that's the way it is with God. When you stand before God on the last day and he asks you, why are you coming in here? You better not say, it's written in the book, we're supposed to. <laughs> it's obedience. I, and hell is hot. Those are bad answers. They, they don't honor him. The answer that honors him is, where else would I want to be? In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You are my treasure. You are the end of my quest. You're the fountain of life. You're the river of delights. I want to be with you forever because you alone satisfy me. That's the answer that will lift him up. A smile will come across his face and he will feel, you just worshipped me beautifully. It's what Sunday's for. It's what devotions are for. It's what systematic theology is for. So step number two in the answer to the question, why are you talking about this as a way of not wasting your seminary? is I know why you exist, Colossians 1.16, you exist to magnify Christ, to make Christ look great, to put the telescope of your life to the dot and make it look like the supernova that it is in this world, and especially if you're a congregation, week in and week out, for 30 or 40 years. Step two in the argument is, if you want to do that, if you want to make him look good, if you want to magnify him, you must be satisfied him in him more than you're satisfied in anything because God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him. You know this from airport encounters with your wife. And I could show you from the Bible, like Philippians 1.20, but I'm not going to take the time to do that. So that's step two in the argument. Step three in the argument is you do biblically increase and feed the flame of your affections for God 
by thinking rightly about God. God has appointed thinking to serve feeling, knowing to serve preferring, reasoning to prefer rejoicing. Now we're going to see this more in a minute, but here I will just repeat the text. You will know the truth and that known truth will free you from the bondage of being satisfied in anything more than God. So step three in the answer to why you're talking about this is that God has appointed seminary, mental, intellectual, doctrinal labors as a means of the affections which bring Him the most glory. End of answer. Three steps. So, I say it again. You won't waste your seminary life if you form the lifelong habit of thinking about the truth of God as a means of enjoying the God of truth. That's why I chose to talk about it the way I am. Question number three. There are four of these. Why make specifically joy? This constellation of, of affections, you say treasuring and and pleasure and delighting in, being satisfied in, and enjoying and rejoicing. Why, why, that, why that joy constellation of affections as ultimate, as the ultimate goal of the unwasted life? Why make that the thing towards which we are forming a habit of nurturing instead of faith? or obedience? Good question. Absolutely good question. Because Paul says the aim of our instruction is love. And why, why are you picking on this? I mean, you've given your whole life to pick on this. You, you, why do you make joy in God the ultimate end of our seminary experience and not faith in God, obedience to God. Now, let me reframe the question. This is very, very important. I assume here, because I know El Moeller and, and I know faculty and I, I know some history, I assume here you really value the Westminster Shorter Catechism until you get to the baptism paragraph. But I know that you value, like I do, the first question. What is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man, it says, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you should now take my question and formulate the question, why didn't it say the chief end of man is to glorify God and trust Him forever? Why not? That'd be more explicitly central to biblical theology. Why didn't it say, I'm just asking these Westminster divines, well, why didn't you guys say 
The chief end of man is to glorify God and obey Him forever. Why? Well, I have two answers. I don't know my history of the Westminster season well enough to know this is their answers, but I hope it is, because it's mine. (laughs) I don't like disagreeing with smart people. (laughs) I have two answers to why they chose what they chose, why I have made delighting in God, enjoying God, treasuring God, the ultimate end of the soul rather than faith or obedience. I'll give you the answers and then I'll talk about them for just a minute. Answer number one is joy in God and joy in God is the essence of faith and the essence of all spiritual obedience. Answer number two Joy is an end in itself, affectionally, emotionally, not a means to anything. You can't make it a means to anything. Psychologically, it won't work as a means to anything, and therefore it has a unique standing as a final revelation of what you treasure. I'll talk about each of those briefly. What is faith? So my first answer is, the reason they chose to say, enjoy God instead of trust God, is because joy is more essential and ultimate meaning of what faith is. So why not go for the ultimate? Go for broke. Same thing about obedience. So what is faith? John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes, faith, who believes in me shall never thirst. Now parallel those two lines, right? I'm the bread of life. Who comes to me, coming to me. This is not a physical coming. It's a movement of the soul. Coming to me in the soul to eat and never hunger. And then parallel that. And he who believes, believe in the place of coming. So who believes in me shall never thirst. And my hunger never thirst. So believing Uh, parallels coming, thirst, hunger. So how would you define faith on the basis of John 6.35? Here's my effort. Believing in Christ is a coming to Him of the soul, a movement, a movement of the heart to drink and to eat so as to satisfy the soul's aching longings. That's faith. Faith at its essence is a drinking, a receiving, an eating of Christ unto the satisfaction of the soul. That's faith. And therefore, it is more essential and more ultimate to say you exist to enjoy Christ than it is to say you exist to trust Christ. Or, another argument, Abraham believed God, was counted to him for righteousness, or you go to the, over the end of chapter 4, or chapter 4, verse 20, he grew strong in his faith, no doubt making him waver, as he gave glory to God, believing the promise. 
Believing the promise. So what do you, what's it like for you to believe the promise of God? What's it like? What, what is that experience? They said, well, depends on what he's promising, I suppose. Yeah, it's true. And the essence of the Old Testament, Abrahamic covenant, promise, which now we have in Christ, is I will be your God, and you will be my people. There are a lot of other pieces to the promise, but the ultimate promise is I'm going to be there for you, with you, and you're going to be mine, and I'm going to be yours forever. That's the promise. Now, what does it mean to believe that? You just said you would. I believe you will. So, in one sense, you could say, the promise is taking him at his word. It's really going to happen. But what if you turned around and said, I believe it's going to happen. Frankly, when I get there, it's not going to be enough. I'm not going to be satisfied in your presence. Is that a believing of the promise? Well, half. Like, I trust, that's really going to happen. You said it, I believe it, you're God. Like the devil can say that. But if you turn and say, now what is promised is not precious to me. It's not satisfying to me. You haven't believed. You haven't believed that promise. Which means the essence of trusting is not that he'll keep his word. Because what he's promising is himself. And if you don't want that, and yet you trust that he keeps his word, you're not believing. This is why the Westminster divines didn't say, your chief end is to glorify God and trust him forever. It's not careful enough. It's not deep enough. It's not ultimate enough. It's not essential enough. You've got to get at the heart of why you exist, at the heart of why he speaks, at the heart of what it means to respond in faith to his promises. And it means when the promiser is the promised, you're satisfied in the promised as well as believing the trustworthiness of the promiser. Or you could go to John 1, 12, to as many as received him, comma, appositionally, who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God. Believing is a receiving of Christ. When you preach, when we preach, we preach Christ. We offer Christ. What does it mean to believe that? It means to receive Him for all that He is as your treasure. <laughs> you don't receive Him as a ticket in your back pocket out of hell and treasure everything in this world more than Him. That is not a receiving of Christ. That's a receiving of a tiny gift. Christ, he can stay out of my life. I just don't want to go to hell. That's not believing. So, my first answer to the question, why, why do you think that uh, they didn't say faith? Is because faith is, in its essence, enjoying God. What about obedience? It's Talk forever on this, just a word. Why didn't they say, the chief end of man is to glorify God and obey Him forever? And my answer is, because the essence of all 
God-exalting spiritual obedience is joy in God. Think of it this way. What's the sum of all the commandments that you should obey? Answer, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said so. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Another sermon, but here it is in 30 seconds. Loving your neighbor is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others, especially the eternal needs. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. That's a paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 8, 2. Or to be more precise, love of people is the ache in your heart that the joy that you have in being saved, in going to heaven, in having fellowship with God would expand even at the cost of your life to include others in it and thus be bigger. So they did not say the chief end of man is to glorify God and obey Him because it's not close enough to the center. It's not close enough to the end, to the ultimate. The ultimate is do you enjoy Him and do you long for that joy to be big enough to draw others into it? And the second answer I said is it's an end in itself. So why did the Westminster Catechism not say trust, obey instead of enjoy? Answer, trust and obey at their essence are enjoyment in God. Second answer, joy is an end in itself, not a means to anything, and therefore is a unique final revelation of what you treasure. You're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. If you're wondering how long we're going to go, he told me I could go to 1130. I don't think we will, but you're wondering. Whoa, this is supposed to be over to 11. Um, (laughs) You're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Um, You do not perform all as a means to impressing your friend. You can't. You can't perform all. All, A-W-E. You can't perform all. You can't will all as a means to anything. All happens or not. And when it happens, it's not you designing it for anything. You can't design emotions that are spontaneous. You can't. Once a year, I eat a Dairy Queen Butterfinger Blizzard (laughs) on my birthday, have for years, once a year. This is my favorite dessert. I missed it on January 11 this year, so I am looking forward sometime soon to doing this. Get the biggest one you can, about five bucks. Little spoon, put it to my lips. There is no sense 
in which I design this pleasure as a means to anything. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now experience this pleasure so that the girl who just did this mix will be very gratified. <laughs> I can't... You, that's not the way emotions and pleasures are. They are ends. Which is why the Westminster people said the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him because joy is not a means to anything. Therefore, it is a unique and final revelation of what you treasure. And that's called worship. And that's the end of everything. Question number four. Last question before a few brief applications. Okay, you said that we will not waste our seminary experience if we form the lifelong habit of thinking about the truth of God as a means of enjoying the God of truth. Doesn't the New Testament say that right affections for God produce Produce right thinking for God? And doesn't the New Testament say that the Holy Spirit produces the right affections? And you're saying thinking does? Knowing does? Those are two questions. My answer to both those questions is yes. Those are true observations. The New Testament does say that right affections produce right thinking, which is the converse of what I've been saying. And the New Testament does say that without the Holy Spirit, there is no right affection. Those are true. They just don't contradict anything I've said. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. This is profound. Ignorance in them, darkened understanding. Why? Due to the hardness of their heart. Hostile heart, angry heart, bitter heart, rebellious heart, blinds. I'm not disagreeing with that. How does that get changed? New birth. 1 Peter 1.23. Now watch carefully here, because this is how, how, this, how what I've been saying is also true. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Verse 25. This is the gospel which you heard. So, here's a dead, angry, bitter, spiritually numb heart 
blinding the mind with such hatred to the truth that it can't see the truth. And therefore can't know the truth. And thus can't be free from that. And regeneration is the only hope. And Peter says, regeneration by the Spirit comes through the living and abiding word, and then comma, two verses later, this truth is the gospel. This word is the gospel which we preach, which means that the way the Holy Spirit wakens the dead, strips away all those false bondages of emotion, is through opening the eyes to truth, you will know the truth. Oh, yes. You must know it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes, there must be profound, deep, heart, affectional alterations that only God can perform, but you will be freed from them through the truth. If you have a ministry and all you do is pray for people to experience regeneration, they won't. People are born again through the Word of God, being processed by ears or eyes illumined by the Holy Spirit to say, whoa, that's not a dot in the sky. So you open your mouth and you overflow with all your thinking. And you pray. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Brief concluding applications. Number one, the greatest threat to your ministry, brothers and sisters, is that you will stop enjoying God. 68 years old, fighting this fight a long time, your greatest threat is that you will stop enjoying God. And therefore, the need for a lifelong habit of thinking about truth for the sake of enjoying truth is imperative. Number two, you will be harmful to your people as a pastor if you lose your joy in God. Not just neutral, harmful. Hebrews 13, 17, your leaders are keeping watch over your souls. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If you lose your joy in God, in ministry, your people will suffer. Number three, the New Testament says that the aim of the Christian ministry is to work for people's truth. I stood in this pulpit several years ago. That was my text. 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. That's what I'm doing. I'm working. I stayed up till one this morning for your joy. That's what pastors do. They think, and they've learned to think for their own joy, and now they can do it for the joy of their people. 2 Corinthians 1.24. Fourth. In every class, every conversation, every book you read, every paper you write, don't be content until the fruit of your mind becomes the flame of your heart. Don't be content. Just pound on that systematic theology. Pound on it. I won't let you go. I will not let you go until you make me glad. I'm telling you, form this habit or you will become a gamesman with ideas and entertain your congregation 
with your brain. That's not what they need. Number five, last one. To that end, to the end of forming this lifelong habit of thinking about the truth of God for the sake of enjoying the God of truth, pray. And I'll just close by telling you how I do it. I have an acronym. I use this almost every day. It's been with me for decades. I-O-U-S, I-O-U's. I, incline my heart to your testimony, O God. Incline my heart. Psalm 119, verse 36. Because my heart often inclines the other way. I'm pleading, oh God, please incline my heart back to the truth, back to your word, back to yourself, because it's drifting. Number two, oh, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your word. Because when I stare at it some days, I see nothing. I see nothing. I'm terrified that I could become bored with your word. I'm terrified that if I find nothing in your word that satisfies my soul and rejoices my heart, I'm, I'm a goner for the ministry. I'm just gone. So open my eyes. Psalm 119, verse 18. I owe you. Unite my heart to fear your name. My heart's so fragmented. It's just going after that and going after that and going after that. I'm all broken to pieces as I come before you. Would you please unite my heart? I want to be solid. I want to will one thing, namely you. So do that, Psalm 86, 11. And finally, I-O-U-S. Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you. You got to pray. You've got to pray without ceasing because this is a miracle. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just close by pleading with you that everyone listening to me would solidify the lifelong habit of thinking about your truth as a means of enjoying yourself. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.